Howdy folks, welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Mels on the 4th. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Kaya Fisher of Rainy Maria. We're talking a bit about Wisconsin's music scene, recording at Smart Studios, and some other topics too. Check it. How did Rainy Maria get started? Uh, we got started in uh, 1995 in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, William, our drummer, and I had played together in a band called Ezra Pound, and we sort of struck out on our own, and then we asked Caitlin to join us on bass, and then turned out um, she started singing as well, which was great, um, which we didn't know at first, but very quickly she started singing also, and we sort of developed a double vocal thing, and then over time she, she sort of became the primary, more, more like the primary vocalist, yeah. Hmm. Cool. Kind of start, kind of similar how my band got started. You know, like I literally invited my buddy Danielle over because she said she played bass. And then she found she sang. I was like, oh shit, nice. Yeah, she sings well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, um, but that's one of the cool things I've always dug about about Rainy Maria. It's in the same consistent lineup of three people. Yeah, you know, I think we never really there wasn't ever really a question of like changing it. Uh, we did it at one. Actually, it's not entirely true. At one point, we did consider whether to bring on a second guitarist just briefly, and we actually asked a, a friend, this guy Ben, um, whether he wanted to do it. But he lived in another city, and um, helped care of his his helped you know care for his father who was a little bit older, and so he 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 sort of you know politely declined. But for the most part, there was never really any question of adding anyone because or changing anything because you know the sound of the band is just the sound of the, these three same people together in a room that's what makes it oh yeah totally yeah all right so when did you start playing guitar um actually not long before Raina maria started believe it or not i was 20 years old um i had originally been a drummer from about sixth grade i had played in in school band and then about uh, ninth or tenth grade started playing the drums on the drum set and then in Ezra pound i played drums and sang and then i just sang and William came in on drums, and then I played a little guitar at the end of Ezra Pound. That was when I started. And so <clears throat> when Rainer Maria started, I'd only been playing guitar with any seriousness for like, I don't know, six months or, or a little longer than that. And um, so it's funny because some of those early recordings, when I hear them, I'm like, oh, normally in that song, you'd put an F chord, but I didn't know how to play the F chord yet. So <laughs> it doesn't go to F ever, you know. You're like in the key of C, and there's no F chord. It's just C and G because I didn't know, you know, or it was too hard to play. Understood. But, so there's a comment there between you, Frank Zappa, and Joe Satriani. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, all three of us started as drummers. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. In fact, should be told is what I've noticed, though, it seems it seems like it's an easier, it's an easier transition to go from drums to guitar than guitar to drums. You know, my, I'm told by drummers that guitarists have notoriously bad timing and that my timing is less bad than others. My timing is not the best, but I think that I'm a little better because I played drums for a while. I would say it doesn't hurt, you know, because I can't play drums for shit. I look like a, it's like, I'll put it this way. One thing I discovered was that, well, one thing I discovered was basically the hardest thing for me to do was to separate, you know, like the hi-hat pattern, also a kick pattern. I was like, wait, oh yeah, patterns to match with it? So that explains everything. That's crazy. Yeah, I never got the left foot going. I was always like a three-limb drummer. The left foot only just barely. I couldn't get like a separate pattern going on the, on the left foot. Similar to you and Dave Grohl, actually. <laughs> exactly. He, he, said, he noticed on a pro by notice he never plays double bass. Never does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I remember we were talking a bit. He said, like, you know, 
like you know as a guitar guy you really your, your guitar heroes are actually more blues guys right yeah i mean certainly uh yeah for sure like um Well, I guess I'm, I'm. Let me let me reassess. Let me assess that question for real. Like, who are my guitar heroes? I mean, yeah, I think that the 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 blues guys more and more like the old kind of like Delta, like old time. Even like not that much so, not so much like uh, electric guitar, but like early. Like the real acoustic motherfuckers, like that. Yeah, like um, uh, like Blind Willie McTell or or, or stuff like that. You know, like Sunhouse um, and stuff. Sunhouse a little bit. Yeah, even like um. Uh, I'm like since we're on an interview, of course I'm like, oh, I'm like freezing up, but um, because I'm I'm trying to remember the name of this one that I've got. Oh, blind. Uh, no, it's not blind. That's why I'm I'm drawing a blank. Hold on a minute. Man, I got the record right there. And I've listened to it a million times, and it's just because we're recording that I'm drawing a blank. Also, I don't know if you know this, but we've all been locked inside for a year, and anything that's not in my apartment, I now can't remember. Do you have this thing of like I can't remember people's names, I can't remember the names of cities, I can't remember. Like all kinds of stuff. It's kind of it's kind of bonkers. All the time. Yeah. Right. So anyway, um, but like a lot of the old like um, Yazoo records and, and those kind of records like were a major influence on me for a while. I, I think partly because in those old records like people are working like a couple of voices at once. You know, there's like the thumb is doing one thing and the upper part of the and the upper part of the guitar is doing another. You get this kind of like, you know, and um, and Rain and Maria being like a single guitar band, I was always trying to figure out ways to make the guitar sound like it was doing two things at once. And so even though we weren't playing at all blues, I was really inspired by that kind of like contra point movement that they could do that and trying to figure out ways to do that in a rock kind of like vein, you know? Oh, totally. Like there's, cer- there's certain techniques, even not even the sound is in there, it's definitely a certain techniques. So like, hey, so-and-so does that, so I'm going to try to do that too. Right, yeah. Or, or like, yeah, what would that sound, what does that sound like when I do it in my sound, not in the, you know, not in the blues thing, but this other thing you know like robert johnson or someone like that like that's that's the blues but like you know sometimes he's they're working in these crazy key like more like uncommon keys like a minor or something i really like that kind of stuff same here you know shoot i remember like um i remember first heard robert johnson i was terrified to play guitar for like when i was 27 years old i was like i was extra cautious the whole year oh yeah the oh, whole year, you, you know, you were the, like the devil's gonna come get me, basically. Sort of like you know the whole Club Twenty Seven shit, basically. It's like just when stuff's starting to go good. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know, I'm like <laughs> a really cautious motherfucker, right? So I'm like with certain people, I was like, oh no, no, I'm not driving your ass. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> right. It's like smart. until you learn turn signals. Oh, I'm standing my ass here. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, be really specific. You know, shoot. You know. That was kind of funny, you know, the person actually got me to, to kind of shake that thinking, a way of thinking, actually, right? All right, you know, you heard this band called 24-7 Spies? Uh, I have, but I don't know them well or anything. All right, they're actually pretty dope, you know? I know Jimmy Hazel, Lee dude, you know? And he broke it down the best way. They didn't die because they were 27, it's because they're heavy drug users. That's how long they usually live. Right, there's, the, there's, there's that. Of like... There. That's a damn good point. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> like, kind of like... Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, shit. Wow. It's kind of weird, like, back in the 60s, like, I'm like, wait, y'all were only 27? When I was 27, I looked 19. <laughs> like, 27 back in the 60s looked like 43 now. <laughs> That's kind of true. Like, good lord. 
I'm like, shoot, I'm like, even when I was like still like 29, I still like, I still I did when I was 21, except a couple of different pounds though. That's true. Right. So, so I say you grew up in Wisconsin, right? Uh, I, actually, I grew up in, in, uh, in, in, in this order, in Indiana when I was real little, and then Oklahoma for like up through middle school. And then I went to high school in Texas, and then I went to I came up to Wisconsin for like college and all that stuff. Okay, so Midwest, Southwest, Midwest. Yeah, kind of Midwest, and then straight down from there. Okay, cool. So, what was Wisconsin scene like? It was a really great scene at the time. Um, that size town—it was about two hundred thousand people or something at that time. I don't know how many folks are there now, but like, it was a good enough size to support like a healthy scene, but not so big that you just got lost in the shuffle. And we were also real adjacent, you know. In Midwest terms, it's like only what, like a three-hour, two and a half or three-hour drive to Chicago, whatever it was. And in, Med- in, Med- in Midwest terms, that's not that far. And so we could drive down there all the time to play. We ended up playing at you know Fireside Bowl for a while, like almost once a month or something like that. And so it was pretty cool to be plugged into the Chicago and the northern suburbs scene, you know, Captain Jazz and Braid and bands like that. Um, and while still kind of like playing in the home- hometown field of Madison, where there are a lot of cool stuff going on in Paris, Texas, and Pound, Wisconsin, and other cool bands. Cool. You know, it was kind of funny. One thing in Chicago, I think of the first two things I think of actually, right? Uh, Bandwise is Big Black with Steve Albini. And oh my God, I can't remember another band's name right now. Um, is it Nancy Reagan? Naked Reagan. Naked Reagan. Why the hell did I think Nancy Reagan? Naked Reagan. See, yeah. So yeah, it's true about like being in a, being in the house for a year. You forget you've you tend to forget shit. It's true. I'm still trying to think of the name of this. It's like I listened to the record like 500 times. I kept I got it right there on vinyl. I'm like, what's the name of that guy? I, I remember by the end. More than likely, Naked Reagan is, was actually the first the first like non mainstream band that I bought their record was was on well a cassette was Naked Reagan Jettison their third album and I listened to that record into the ground. I loved that band. I remember I was first getting into melodic hardcore, right? And it was on YouTube, and they'd do like the like top ten melodic hardcore bands, and so they would play like a thirty, maybe ten, fifteen second clip, right? And I couldn't remember the name of the band. Sorry about it. I can't remember the song, and that was stuck in my head for like three years until I remember what it was. Wow, what was it? I can't remember what it was. Play <laughs> <laughs> in three years and let me know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Luckily, I could just find it on YouTube, look up Naked Reagan, because I couldn't think of a band either. Oh, right, right. So I was like, okay, so at least I know the band now. So I was like, okay, I can just double track and everything. So when I think of, like, okay, so I think of, those, when I think of Chicago, I think of, well, Steve Albini, of course. And um, yeah. I think also, I think of, it's kind of weird how my mind works. I think where, you know, Steve Albini recorded with Nirvana in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. And also, um, when I think of Nirvana, I also think of Smart Studios, right? Yeah. Which y'all recorded at too, right? Yeah, so we did we did a bunch of our records. We did uh, our sec- Look Now, Look Again, and uh, Better Version of Me, and <clears throat> Long Knives Drawn, and the Atlantic EP, uh, with uh, and, and a little bit some other singles and stuff with this guy Mark Haynes, who's an incredible producer and engineer, who was at that time based at a Smart Studio. Smart, of course, is closed, um, but it was an it was amazing to be able to work there because of him. And, um, you know, like the first time we were in there, I remember we took a break from recording and he went and pulled Nirvana Nevermind demo reels out of the basement. And he was like, don't tell anyone I played these for you. So I'm going to tell everyone on your podcast. (laughs) But he was like, you know, because they were like, these were like gold or something. And he played us like, um, you know, early versions from when they were demoing their, what would become Nevermind later when they were demoing it at Smart Studios with Butch Big. 
Yeah. You know, and so he play, I think he played this anger like the version of aneurysm that was on that they had done that was like really really slow and we we're like this is so cool. Was um, there any? I wonder there any unreleased stuff? You know. Oh yeah, I mean we only I think we only listened to one or two cuts like that, but it was crazy to listen to it coming off the reels. You know, like it was like nuts. And then he um. Actually, later we went up with him to for the Atlantic EP. We went up to Pachyderm Studios, which is where In Utero was recorded. Yeah, yeah. And so we got to use the the mic that that Kurt had sung into, and the, actually the amp that if you, you read articles about In Utero, they talk about this broken quad reverb or whatever that he was playing through, and it, it was there the, the same broken amp. I was like, this thing sounds terrible. <laughs> but it was cool to record in that space, and that that studio had an incredible sound. So pretty neat to be in there. Yeah, because it's like. Yeah, I like the reverb on there too. Yeah, it's that room. That room at Packerman was this like really incredible sounding room. So they just put these, you know, Albini with the room mics, just bring up these drum room mics, and it's like the sound was incredible. So, what were those sessions like for the albums? You know, what was the first time you recorded there? Uh, well, the one, at Smart, the first time we recorded there was our second album, Look Now, Look Again. Um, and you know, it was kind of like a weird, it was a strange time or interesting time in that like there was still kind of like the height of the, we're like at the back end of the golden era of analog, the extreme back end, right? Like digital recording was just coming in and like home recording hadn't quite leveled up as far as it has now where you can make really pro sounding stuff at home, but there were like really cool four track records being made. And so it was like this time where you were like studios like smart, which, you know, maybe five or 10 years previous, we almost never would have been able to afford. You could like kind of afford to get in there. You know what I mean? Like if you were willing to like wait till they had like an open week and, and you know, the label was willing to pay like a little bit extra, you could get in. And so, but as a result, we ended up having, you know, we, we never had like a month or a year or something to work on an album, you know, like now recording at home or mixing at home, you can just take your time. But so we, we would have to really have the songs dialed and we'd go in. And I think that first album, I think look now look again, we did in, I don't know what it was, six or eight days or, you know what I mean? It wasn't long at all. Like, contemporary standards you know so we would do you'd track three or four songs a day and then you know, it was like a day or two set getting tones day and a half probably and you'd track like three or four songs a day and then you'd mix two or three songs a day and that was it that was all you got you know so they were pretty intense session and focused sessions like that and everything not a lot of overdubs or retakes just a lot of like playing it live with the group until we got a good one I was just about to ask that. Was it like full band style? Or was it like layered like a motherfucker? No, really, really full band and, and not that much. Um, definitely some guitar overdubs for like uh, kind of just like, you know, density and, and fun. But like for the most part, like, you know, it was really about capturing the energy of the of the group. And, and Mark Haynes, to his credit, like really insisted that we not over kind of like be overwrought he really wanted to get he really loved our band and and the live experience of our band so he was really committed to like capturing that energy in an authentic way and and so he didn't like you know over compress things or you know what i mean like the record was the records really breathe and, and i think it makes them really listenable like you know even many years later you know completely because you know what i feel there are a lot of bands that when i see them live they're fucking amazing but when you get to the studio it loses a certain thing it's kind of like Here's a weird analogy, kind of like um the old Howard Stern show, right? When he would do bits live on the air, it was like half written, half improvised, right? Good yeah. or bad was the energy was there, right? So what he right. did was, you know, it was him, Robin, and they tried to re-record the bits and everything, right? But the energy wasn't there, the spontaneity wasn't there. So right. it felt like this feels forced as hell. 
Yeah. So it's kind of like that's what's kind of admired about that, you know. Even though playing to a click does have its benefits when I'm in the mix and everything, you know. Right. Aside from that, it's nothing a, a good live take, you know, and minimal overdubs as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I you could count the number of Ray Maria songs that were clicked on like one hand. If, I mean, I can't even off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but there must have been something. Um, but like even on ST, even on the most recent record, there's no. I don't think we did anything to a click track. You know, it was always just the live group. And and even, like, um, you know, pitch correction, once the vocal pitch correction came in, like, for Raina Maria, that was, like, I don't know if we ever used pitch correction on the vocals. You know, it just wasn't a thing. Well, it, it just, especially in the early days, you can really tell. But even now, when you can do it kind of tastefully, like, for Raina Maria, it was never a thing. Yeah, like, Melodyne helps out. It's, like, it's kind of like, I'll put it this way, when the general populace... You know, here's about something that's like, no, it's not ever done in Terra's auto tune. It's also Melodyne. You don't even know the difference. You right, know? right. Yeah, that's true. You know, and it, it kind of depends on. There's, I'm not, I'm not like an analog purist at all, and I'm not, a, I'm not against, you know, I don't know, auto tuning or any of that. But it's just a question of like, what captures the musicality and what is your singer have going on, you know? So that's a good point too. You know, all right. So okay. Okay, so here's something I didn't know about you. Um, you also got into, when did you get into producing engineering? You know, that just kind of came up along the way. I think I, I I always had like a four track at home. And so some of the early Rain and Maria, like the first EP, the six song EP, self-titled EP, you know, we recorded that at home on the four track and then it was mixed at the studio kind of thing. Um, and so from the, and we would, all the albums, we did cassette demo, four track demos for them. You know, um, we would demo out all the songs and so that the person, so that Mark or whoever could hear them first. And then, so that was really fun. Um, and then, uh, so it's had kind of always been like that. And then like around the time that Raina Maria kind of, you know, ceased operations around 2006, um, like I, I, there was a while where I was like producing and recording and mixing other people quite a bit. And so I did a, a number of records at that time for bands like Scary, Scary Mansion, and artists like Michael Levitin, Andrew Vladek, who's still around. Um, and then now recently, you know, with Caitlin. So I, um, and I've, I've worked on reading real stuff a little bit. I, I mixed um, the first song on Catastrophe. Um, was, was a mix that I did with William. And, uh, and, and, on, and on ST, we, we did some like kind of intermediate mixes before we ended up handing off for the final mixes. So along the way, there's been a lot of stuff. And then Caitlin's three albums, I did the first, I produced and recorded, co-produced and recorded the first one. And the new one, I did all the recording and mixing. So, um, yeah, I've always been kind of doing that on the side, but never like, I did it kind of full, quasi full-time for a little while, but now it's just kind of a hobby. I'm with you because when I was younger, right, I wanted to be Bob Stone so bad. He was the guy to engineer all Frank Zappa stuff. Oh, right. Like, you know, I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm a huge Frank Zappa fan, right? Okay. All right. So I wanted to try to record my, my own UMRK studio in my basement when I was a kid and everything, right? Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I got the four track out and everything, and I'm still learning, you know, about rock music, how to record it, and even how to write, how to make it and everything, right? Yeah. So I make, like, little beat tapes and everything. Hell, it's kind of funny, like, like we're here about stuff about Chill Wave. I'm like, I was doing that back in 1999. I was just called boredom. Was that a fucking genre? <laughs> it was called being bored with a keyboard, a four track. <laughs> right. You know? 
But okay, would you say it's like you know, is it's a good skill to have and learn them? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know. Like early on in music, I, I was a little, but coming out of, of like punk or like melodic hardcore, um, I was I definitely in, in my early days was was suspicious of too much kind of virtuosity, too much skill, too much kind of like. Um, I don't know what you call it, kind of science knowledge about music or something. I wanted to be coming from a real intuitive place, and there's something to that. But you can really only sustain that so far before you just fall into patterns. And then it helps to... Um, so I like that when you're a beginner at something, to enjoy your beginnerness and this process of discovery along, along following your own ear, your own heart, your own eye, and what, whatever you're working in. But there comes a point where if you don't really start to apply the knowledge of the people that have come before you, you're just you're not going to really grow the same way. And so you got to know when that time is. True. And, and in a way, I feel like I waited too long with Rainer Maria because I was still in that. I, it would have been good to go in and learn more music theory than I did earlier than I did. And I've, I've learned, I've been able to learn some now. Um, yeah. And the same goes with engineering because when you, for me, like when you start to close the, I don't know what you call it, square the circle or something on, connecting the music and the science of recording where you go like, wait, all of these frequency numbers that seem like weird math, those all have musical value. Those are notes, right? Oh yeah. Like 440, that's a, that's like middle uh, A or whatever, right? Yeah. Middle C. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And then, you so uh, when you start to like really put those together, then all of a sudden EQ, you're like, oh, this is like also music. You know, it's not just kind of like swipes in the dark. It's kind of like in a weird way the studio is almost like an instrument itself, like kind of like the old dub reggae dudes, you know. For sure. They use like this, like the board, like a fucking instrument. Like, you know, they use delay, they use reverb, like your own instrument and everything, right? So it all has musical value, kind of like that. Yeah, and I think that's the, for me, like with digital recording, the thing that Mark Haynes was doing where he was like, I'm trying to present in a really analog way you know, like really make an analog in, in the most basic sense, like something come out of the speakers at home that's analogous, you know, to what you're doing on stage. Like, that's like one craft. And But that's not what I mastered because it, I didn't have the opportunity to work in that kind of way. It requires a certain kinds of, a certain, it, it's a discipline that requires like certain kinds of equipment and stuff like that to do well, I think. Whereas what I, what I, what I came to realize was like you're saying with digital recording, if you worry a little less, I mean, you want to get a, a beautiful performance always. But when it comes mix time, if you tackle the song itself and the mixing as like you're playing an instrument that, that has a relationship to the original music, but that is also doing its own thing, then you can make things in the digital realm that are really quite beautiful. You know, so it's a, to me, it's a very different art. Agreed entirely, you know, because recording analog, recording digital is way two different things. Like, because back when I was younger, it's like when I had like a little four track, I would just hit the record button, right? You wanted to hit the, well, you want you to hit record button, there you go. I didn't know what the digital way to hit record and play at the same time. So I was like, oh, okay, so I had to kind of learn that. Right. When I was, and also it was weird, I had like a Fostix, so the red one, those was red eight track, right? Okay. And. I didn't know what I was doing, so I just got this weird feedback, and I was so horrified by it. I just said, like, you know what? Let me just stick with the blue four track. Let me just stick this one here. <laughs> I didn't touch anything digital until it came to my computer, you know? Right. And then I got back into it, though, later on, you know? So then it's like, okay, this is pretty cool, you know? So, but 
Okay, something else too. Alright, I noticed when it comes to Rainy Maria, I noticed that it gets labeled under indie rock or emo. Would you say that's an accurate description or is this like labels are for soup cans for just Rainy Maria? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think those are both kind of like, they're musical tags, but also kind of social tags. It's like, what's the scene that you were in? So we were definitely an indie band, you know, mostly ran within the indie scene and, and emo in terms of like, you know, uh, again, like Braid, Captain Jazz, all these bands from the from the Midwest, and then and then eventually also the East Coast, West Coast, you know, um, would have been our contemporaries, you know, where that was the scene that we were in, and and then whether you and then those scenes kind of make a, a into a sort of genre, but I, but I, I'm not like super, I'm not someone who I'm not really that interested in like policing the boundaries of that or or even like taking a stance. I just I take the I accept the label as a label and it's useful insofar as it's useful, but it's not the only thing. At the end of the day, Rain and Maria is kinda just like a rock band, I guess, you know? And and then if if it's helpful to to like, you know, to be located more precisely than that, then you can say emo or indie or even second wave emo or something like that, you know, if you're talking to kids who are experts, <laughs> then that helps them understand. But it's everything's also kind of its own thing, you know. Exactly, because when I heard the term emo, it was kind of weird because the first thing was Emo Phillips, actually. I was like, huh? Right. So, so I had to do, Dan to do a backtrack because we're first heard, yeah. hearing the term emo a lot. It was in 2006, right? And apparently, mm-hmm. those weren't really emo bands. They're called scene or something like that. But I don't know how the term emo got associated with them because I was like, mm-hmm. okay, how the fuck do you go from Fugazi to My Chemical Romance? Right. Because I was like, this isn't, I was like, this isn't emo. This is really badly done goth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, for me, that I first heard that term I was about fifteen, but we called it emotional hardcore. Yeah, right? it was like similar to melodic hardcore. It's like this is well, this is like the it's like melodic hardcore, but it's a little more like catharsis based. And so, you know, and so like early Fugazi or Rites of Spring and that kind of you know, and and uh, embrace, you know, Ian McKay's band. That was like what we were talking about, and so I was very identified with that. Um, but then, you know, what? How much that has in common with? you know, what third wave emo became or something, I guess is something that we, scholars can debate in the future. I know, because I know like, I know like Midwest emo has like a specific sound. I'm like, it sounds nothing like Sanity Real Estate. And it sounds, you know, to me, it doesn't sound like Fugazi. It was like, it's his own distinct sound, you know, kind of like how West Coast Punk has, has sounds different than East Coast Punk, you know, which sounds a little bit different. And, you know, that's one thing I really miss actually, before everything gets so homogenized, every era had their, every you know, every place had their own sound. Like, yeah. even like with rap, right? East Coast rap sounded more jazz, funk, and more grittier samples. The West Coast stuff sounded more like, you know, Midwest funk and like, you know, stuff like that, you know. Or even like in, in Midwest rap, it was just, they just rap really fast over there, out there, I noticed. I mean, it's funny because the, the label also kind of obscures for me, like the actual, it'd be interesting to, to interview musicians and find out what the actual kind of music tree is. Cause like for us, like definitely we were in conversation with our friends from Chicago who we were playing shows with, but like, you know, J church from San Francisco from the Bay area or like a uh, low from Minnesota, these bands were massively influential on us, but they were making music that wasn't that similar to ours. But like the reason why early rain Maria was often so slow and quiet had to do with this band low, you know, or what, or, or certain kinds of melodic patterns that we favored came out of East Bay pop punk, but it, we just weren't playing East Bay pop punk, but we liked certain kinds of melodic patterns that they did, so we stole those and did them at like a different tempo or with a different vocal, you know? It's interesting. 
I really dig the fact they had like a vast sonic palette though. It's like, okay, we're not copying this, but we like the idea of this to make it ours. There you go. Yeah. I mean I mean Shoegaze was like the number one guitar influence, but I I wasn't playing a jazz master with a whammy bar, but I was always trying to figure out ways to slow down the attack on that guitar and to give it this kind of like shuddering effect, you know? That was like something out of Shoegaze that I that I wanted to do, but we didn't we weren't a shoegaze band by any means. How does your solo work differ from your work with Maria Maria? Well, I made one record with Polyvinyl, that record Open Ground, and at that point, Rain and Marie had done, we'd come up through Better Version of Me, and we had made a, you know, which is a pretty loud record, and we'd done a bunch, that we did a lot of really heavy touring on that record. I think at one point, I counted like 200 shows we played in one year or something. Like at the end of the year, I counted, and I was like, how can it be that many? You know, we had toured so much, and... um and I sort of needed to do something really, really different to just reset. And so um, I started playing acoustic guitar, and, and because at that point I was really influenced with the blues stuff, I was playing a lot of acoustic guitar, fingerstyle even, and was writing these pretty like densely played little songs in the in my bedroom. Um, and uh, and so I ended up recording those songs with Mark Haynes at Smart. It's a pretty beautiful sounding record. It didn't sell. I think it sold three copies or something, but. But it, uh, but it was a lot of fun to make, and it, and it was a lot of fun to write. Um, and so we did that. And I actually did a second album later, around 2004, I think, called Black Milk. Um, and that record, like, didn't, it was only released on End Up Records in Brooklyn. And now, like, I don't, it's not, like, streaming anywhere or anything. I just, like, when people want to hear it, I just give them a download link. So, but it was always just kind of, like, a place for me to, like, put songs and ideas that, like, weren't, I mean, for, for for starters, anything that was Rain and Maria is just like ended up being what we all wrote together. But so anything that I wrote outside of that context that I thought was interesting or wasn't sure what to do with, I would just kind of end up doing something on my own with. Yeah. For some of it. All right. Infinitely, Infinitely Apart has the um, ambient drone energy to it, right? Yeah. So t- I, I also, you're right. I did some stuff as under the name Tarakaya, and and especially that drone stuff. This record, Infinitely Apart. Um, which is all, that's all like cassette, like really lo-fi cassette recording. So it's really, some of it's really grindy and warbly and stuff. Yeah. I dug it actually. Cool. Thanks. No I've problem. got a bunch of more of that stuff that I need to mix, but that's more hi-fi, but I just haven't had a chance. Sweet. You spent some time in Asia too, right? I did. I lived in, um, I work as a translator of Tibetan books. That's my day job. And uh, so I, I, I have apprenticed for many, many years under uh, Dr. Lozong Jamspal. He was at Columbia University. And so I studied Tibetan with him, and he and I translate to this day together um, old Tibetan Buddhist books. And, uh, and I lived, uh, I went with him to Thailand, um, and, and uh, he's, where he's still, he's still there. He teaches at a Buddhist uh, university there, International Buddhist College. And so I went there as his teaching assistant. I was there for a year and a half before I came back for the random reunion. I thought that was cool because I was doing research on you and I was like, huh, interesting. I like you do your homework. Oh yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel you've grown as an artist? You know, the, the main thing that I noticed coming back, um, to Raina Maria, when we reformed around, what was that? 2013 or so, um, after taking a break in 2008, um, that had changed was, I guess I was, le- for whatever reason, I was less concerned when we came back about like person, my, my own personal expression as something separate from 
You know what I mean? Like as an artist, it's something that existed separately or alongside that of my bandmates. I didn't feel like, well, here's three people who are coming together to do it to make this thing. It was like, it's just the collective, you know? And in some ways, I, I was much more interested in trying to figure out what they were getting at than I was in like bringing something new to the room. I don't know if that makes sense, but like put it this way, like sometimes when you, early when you're in a band, you know, you have those practices where like everyone on a different instrument is playing something separate and they're all hoping that the other person will listen to the thing they're doing and come around to their idea. Sometimes you have that in a band. I don't know if you ever had that. Oh, but all like, the fucking time. It's, yeah, it's like an early music. So like one, and you're like, oh, I hope this link is really tight. Can't wait till I hear this. And when we came back, for whatever reason, I had less of a tendency to to do that. And I was more interested in, like, you know, even if, if I was going to start a lick, I was trying to figure out, well, what is it that I do? What am I doing that, that they're liking? And how do I give them more of that? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, and so it was kind of just like a, it's subtle, but it made a real difference in terms of um, what, where I was willing to, where we, where we could go as a group, you know? Oh, yeah. That I wasn't like, oh, I need it to be a certain way. So. Yeah, so those days, like, what are these musical backgrounds like? In Rainer Maria? Yeah. Uh, you know, none of us were were trained as a as as musicians on our instruments that we ended up on. Um, although I will say the other thing that was real different when we came back in 2013 was both of my bandmates were massive badasses, <laughs> which they had always been really good at their instruments, but like. It was like they had both in some way stayed in the game. And so when I came back, I was like, whoa, everyone's like really, really good now. Like even more way better. Like this is it was like so fun. And it made things really neat because they were just both, you know, had, had, had continued to grow as musicians. And so it was like going back to this familiar place and having it be even better. Yeah. Uh, I meant more like, like, like musically, it's like what is like, what was I really, really into? Because, oh, yeah, like that. But I love, right, like, I love, I love how, the, I love the answer though. Yeah. Well, William, William had definitely come out of punk, but we all grew up listening to like lots of, and Caitlin like a little more out of like kind of indie, um, uh, or like like shoegaze, Brit, actually Brit pop kind of stuff. Okay. She spent some time in England, okay. um, but we all, um, so yeah, there were there were those kind of kind of influences, but you know, we all kind of like pretty broad very quickly had a pretty broad listening palette so it's hard to I can say like what we all listen to in 10th grade or something we also shared kind of like a love of New Wave and those kind of things I, th- I remember William saying at one point that his first record he bought was Gary Newman Cars or something you know I can tell and Caitlin's like a real Depeche Mode you know changed her life so we all had that kind of in the back too which I think has a certain kind of melodic sensibility that even though instrumentally we weren't in that realm I think probably made a big impression on us Oh, yeah, I can tell. Like with Caitlin's solo work, it's very electronic, you know. So the yeah. Peter Pesh Mo fan, it makes a lot of sense when I hear that. Yeah, because like over my end, it's like okay. So as you've as you met Danielle, she's like you know she's like the she's like the rocker shaker group in church. Um, Uncle Ernie is on bass. He's the jazz fusion funk guy. Um, actually, it was funny. He was in the band earlier, but it's like that's another weird wild story. But he's back on drums now. Chris, he's more the metal post hardcore guy and mm. i'm like basically just i just grew up listening to every fucking thing i could get my ears on so it goes from like right. from rock to reggae to jazz to blues to country even actually you know so i guess that's why i kind of more of a kind of frank zap and stuff you know so right. it just kind of comes together and stuff like that so it just you know 
yeah, you know. It seems like you have a pretty broad style frame of reference in your playing. I'm glad you mentioned church, though, because I, you know, ultimately for me, like, when I was a kid, there's this woman that played. My dad is a preacher, and my, there's a woman that played organ in our church growing up. Her name was Retta Mayfield, and I just remember the sound of that church organ. You know, where it's like there's all these octaves going at once. Oh know? yeah. And and I feel like that, ultimately, like that kind of like Protestant church music harmonic sensibility, like really informed my guitar playing probably more than anything else. You know what I mean? I was always trying to figure out like, how do I make it sound like that sound of this, like all this harmonic overtone that I have in my head. And I think it comes from those sounds being like really in my body from a really young age. Is that the reason why I, cause up for this way, when I was doing ears ring, I noticed I had to break the octave pedal out there. I had to break the octave pedal out and also like the also break the fuzz pedal out. And it was a fuzz yeah. pedal actually, right? To get the yeah, harmonics. Yeah. Cause I was never a harmonic guy to like, Oh, so that's how they get it. Sweet. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that was the thing with Rainer Maria was I was always working really hard to figure out how to make that this kind of like low mids like shudder in the way that I could I heard on My Bloody Valentine and stuff. And I figured out le- over time, like, if you get like a kind of compressed density in the low mid that you, that you get with fuzzes, especially, or certain kinds of overdrives, then whenever you, whatever interval you're playing takes on this textural quality that's what you're talking about like on sonic ears ring there's like certain chords you hit it and it just goes like makes that like you know yes it's like it like it like really shudders and i love that i was and so for years with ring and Maria, i chased that sound and it was really on on better version we started to get it and then you know long knives drawn i think um that was where like i felt like oh we're really those two records both are kind of like really I, where I had figured it out how to do it. And I love that. To this day, I love that sound where it's like, because you can tell like the, on the lower two strings or whatever, whatever interval you're playing, you can like feel it, you know, like the oh, second yeah. you play a second and it like really is this big low, like long shutter. And then you go to a third and it's faster. And then you play a fifth and it almost disappears. Then you play the octave and it's like, Oh, it's so cool. I love that. It does. Cause to be honest, you know, I, I never really used like a fuzz pedal because it sounded like a garage record and not the way I wanted it to. Yeah. So I started to learn to utilize it because of that. So thanks. There's, there's so many types, right? It's like there's so many different sounds. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what was it like working with, um, you know, Caitlin Demer- Um, How do you pronounce that? I, I do Should they use the, the French pronunciation? Demeray. Oh, Demeray. Demeray, yeah. I was totally gonna to fuck that one up. I almost said I almost said Damaris, you know. Damaris. I call her Damaris sometimes. Damaris. <laughs> kind of like with David Benoit, you say David Benoit just to just like tick him off. Right, right. All right. So, what was it like working with her, like in a different context outside of the band, though? It's been fun to work on her solo stuff. Um, Caitlin's like, you know, in Rain and Maria and out of Rain and Maria, like it's really flexible. Like we would do. There's times with St. where. We'd be like, you asked about outside the band, but this this story comes to mind. We're like, we'd be working on something, and we'd go like, wait, try something different on bass. I don't know, try something different. And she would just like, she would have already written just like an incredible bass line, and then she'd just like, pull out another one out of thin air that was like a totally different approach. Hmm. It was also amazing. You know what I mean? I was like, and then or like, you know, broke open love, the first song on ST. It's got that great bass line. And she like wrote the bass line and the vocal like at the same time like literally at this like i'm like how do you do that like i don't understand like 
I couldn't do either one of those things, and you, like, did them simultaneously. Like, how does that work at all? You know, there were days when William and I would just be, like, in the practice room, like, kind of looking at each other, like, did that just happen? Like, how does she come up with that, you know? I know, right? Um, it's like these riffs that fall from the sky. Yeah, and just, and it was, you know, with her over and over on the bass, it's like this thing where I'd come with some guitar bit, and I'd be like, this is great, you know, like, and then she adds the bass line, like, artificial light, you know? It's a cool guitar line, I thought, and then she adds the bass line, and you're like, well, now it's never the song without that bass line, you hmm. know? Like, that's how good the bass line is, is if you play it without, it's like, it's not the song yet. It's not the song until you have the bass line there. So True. it's it's cool to work with an artist like that. And so, like, on her solo stuff, too, like, she's able to respond on a dime to whatever's happening, and she just, like, comes up with, like, just, like, you know, she's like, I wrote this thing, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's this amazing song. <laughs> what? Hmm. Yeah. One of the things I always found difficult was to try to sing and play bass at the same time. Yeah, especially when you work, like, with counterpoint and stuff. Yes. Like, that's amazing. Like, because I tried to do that, and it's like, I do not have the rhythm for that, and everyone can pull it off. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed. Yeah, there's a, on our live record, there's the, the, the every, anyone, anyone in love with you already knows, there's, like, the, the version, it's a double record, and one of them is video, one of them is audio, and on the audio one, there was a version of the song Spit and Fire. And whenever I listen to that, there's a long middle section where she's singing and, and playing the bass at the same time. And I'm like, I don't understand how you sing that well while you're playing that bass line. Every time I hear it, I'm like, how, does she, how is that a live recording? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> I know, right? You know? Hmm. All right. I want to wrap this one up, too. But I'm just curious. Of what, wait, did, I, did I ask about your gear set up earlier? Oh, man, I was hoping you would. I've been thinking about it all day. Always, because always. Here's the thing about it. I would like to kind of like on this on this show. I like to kind of geek out about stuff like you know. I don't, I don't like to do the gossip wrong, gossip rumor wrong or bullshit. I would literally ask about gear stuff all day and like how is that stuff recorded because you know I can't find details and stuff like that. That's the stuff I give right. a fuck about. You know. Yeah. So all right. So okay. So guitar wise, you know, what's what's your setup guitar wise? Well, so I'll give you like a. I'll tell you like here's like the 20 years of guitar research if you Rainer Maria if you wanted like the Rainer Maria sound I'll tell you here's what the setup would be which is you just use a Stratocaster on the bridge pickup and I I play usually Japanese Stratocaster Fender Strats but you could use anything even you know honestly a good one is a good one I, I actually have one here that's an Indonesian reissue you know from like 20 you know like 2018 I love it so you just got to get one in your hands that you're like, this is a good one. You can just tell it's a good one. And then I use W-I-L-D-E pickups, Wild. Bill, Bill and Becky Lawrence make them. Um, those pickups are great, and they're not expensive. So um, I think the Wild pickups are the best by far. And then uh, on the, to the, uh, the, the tone controls, if you really want to go for the Rain and Maria sound, you change the value of your volume pot from 250K to 100K. And it makes your guitar really dull sounding. And I love the sound of it. <laughs> but you don't have to do that. But that's what I do on mine now. And then the, on the tone pot, it's 250K. But the, you change the value of the capacitor to 0 0.005 microfarad or 0 0.01 microfarad. And then it doesn't go so deep. So you can just roll it back like 50%. And you get this kind of like rolled off top end. You need that because otherwise the the bridge pickup on a Strat is so bright, it'll just tear your head off. 
But as a result, you get this thing where like the bridge pickup is really bright, but you're rolling the top off it, and it's real focused sounding. And then when you when you add the some low end in your EQ later, it doesn't get muddy, but you can get that thick sound that you and I like in that low mids. So then, all right, so now we're going down the pedal board. I use where I come to is it's just the classics. You need some variant of tube screamer and you need sub-variant of Big Muff. The Tube Screamer, the, the standard TS9s I think are great. Um, I like these ones that this guy George McDonald makes by hand. He's like this guy on reverb, it's Don Geomac, D-O-N-G-E-O-M-A-C is his, his thing. He makes these like bufferless Tube Screamers. He sells them for like 80 bucks. They're amazing. And then I really like the uh, Chicago, um, what's it called? Uh, Chicago, Stomp, what are they called? Chicago Stompbox. I can't remember the name of the company now. Um, but there's a company in Chicago that makes like clones, and they make really great old um, electro harmonics, big muff clones for like eighty or a hundred dollars. Those are great. Um, Boss SD1 also a great pedal. So I put a, a two screamer first, and then a big muff, and those two together, I can get my range of sounds. Because the you need those two together because the two screamer gives you a bump at like one k which is awesome, but then the, big, then the Big Muff has like a, they have these funny tone controls on them where there's a dip in the mids. And so those two work together. And so because you get that bump, it's really in your face, and then you use the Big Muff to pull out just the right section of the low mid so that your low end is there and the bump is there and there's a little notch in the low mid and so it gives you this hugeness. Those two together to me are magic. There's a reason why those are popular. Then... Then you need some kind of modulation pedal. I like flanger. The reason I like flanger is because it makes your shit feedback like crazy because it like notches your mid-range. So a lot of the like really squealy um, uh, feedback in Rainy Maria is because I was using an MXR micro flanger. You turn that on and you stick your pickups in your amp in, like in your, at the, your amp speakers and it goes crazy. Um, so... I like to have a, a modulation pedal like a flanger or a phaser on the board just because you can hit that sound in the middle eight of a song and it tells everyone immediately this is a different section. You know what I mean? You just need some kind, something that's like a color pedal that goes like, we're doing a different thing now. And so I really like flangers for that. Phasers are great too. If you're doing like a retro thing, chorus is amazing if you get the right one. And then, uh, and then a delay. And I like something a little longer that you can use um, timed. Um, for Rain and Rhea, uh, I used a Dan Echo for years. That's what you hear on Rise on our second album. Um, they tend to break. All their, their, their really terrific sounding. Um, uh, early Rain and Rhea, I used a Big Green MXR analog, M8, M118 analog delay. Those are incredible sounding. They're a little too um, like like fat for me now um, for, electric, for like electric guitar work. Um, so... I, I do like the Empress Super Delay. It's, that's expensive, but it has a good, um, you know, if you're if, if you're going to invest in one piece of gear, it has a great auto setting where, like, it it automatically reads the tempo you're playing in and syncs to you. I find it very useful. I don't I love the sound of tap delay, but I don't like tapping my foot. Um, so I think that's a pretty cool pedal. But I also just like a just any analog delay. Like a now what I use is like an Orion A R I O N, like a their delays are like again under a hundred bucks. You've seen a theme like all my gear is like under a hundred bucks. Like it needs to be like I can find it easily. It needs to be under a hundred bucks. 
because it's like it's like a tour thing. It's like if I'm on tour, I need to be able to like walk into any guitar store and find something like the thing because it's gonna break, you know. Um, so yeah, and then I really like the um, the Earthquaker Ghost Echo pedal for reverb. I think it's really cool to give you some spaciousness. I really like the early ones, version one and version two. I do like version three also, but the um, the uh, it has like a kind of a pre-delay that has like kind of a delay effect on it that's a little stronger. Um, and so I tended to favor a little bit version one and version two, although version three is, is more luscious. So, but that's basically it. It's like the two, you know, I use a, the 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 overdrive and fuzz, the uh, um, a modulation pedal like a flanger and a delay, and then uh, I also use an uh, for Rain and Marie, I use sometimes an electroharmonics freeze pedal for like one particular song just to give you that big driving drone. But basically, I always found that like four or five pedals and then a tuner was like enough. And then anything over that was just, you know, felt like too much because it, I don't, I, if I have too many options on the floor, I stop thinking about what I'm playing and I start looking at my feet. You know, I'm just like, oh, it needs a little more of this, a little less of that. I like not too many knobs on the floor because then I'm more with my bandmates and less with, with my gear. So, Actually, that's the story I heard. That's how shoegaze got started, because a lot of the guitar players had a tendency to kind of stare at their pedal boards all day when doing this kind of this kind of more ambient, wafty kind of rock. That's what I call shoegaze, because they were literally staring at their shoes the whole time. That's what I heard. See, I, I, heard I, I read that recently that it was about the pedal boards, but my theory is that... It, that was actually just because they didn't give a shit about performing. <laughs> oh, okay, true. But, but the legend, but the legend has grown to be about their pedal boards because now shoegaze is known for these giant pedal boards. But I'm not sure. I don't know whether it was like that in the beginning. I'm curious. I want somebody to ask Kevin Shields if that's true. Maybe it was. Shit. I remember somebody kept on asking me. It was like, okay, why do you like stare so much? Why do you stare down at the stage when you're when you're playing everything? Right. I'm like two reasons why. Um, to make sh- two reasons why actually. Um. The people out there. Oh, and there, there are people out there. <laughs> you know, that's the reason yeah. why. I never forget. There was this one show that I had, and I had like this really bad facial tick, right? And oh, people yeah? thought I was making guitar face. Like, no, I was fucking nervous, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified. So, I'm like, I went down doing impression of Gary Moore. I was, I was mortified. You know. Oh my god. So, shoot, it's like um, hey. Uh, I guess we got. I guess about wraps it up. Actually, you know, but great chatting with you. Yeah, this is super fun. Thank you. Thanks so much, and thanks for asking all those questions. It's really interesting to answer. And you know, nobody asked me about guitar gear and stuff, or like guitar approach. So I love those questions. So thanks for asking about that. Those things. No problem. Shoot, actually, you're probably the first person that I know that really knows how to utilize flanger. Somebody <laughs> else too, because every time I try to use flanger, it just sounds like the beginning of. It just sounds like a jet taking off and. Yeah, I don't it's, like the Jeff Lantern yet. No, me neither. You know, it's a I'm using chorus or reverb. Or like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do this one sound, right? Like, mm. I don't know. You ever watch like Late Night with Seth Meyers? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know that that the song where the band plays at the end. Yeah. That one guitar sound. I'm trying to figure out how to pull that shit off. Man, that's got it. You got to you got you got to write to the the guy and whoever that is playing the girl, whoever it is, and ask. Because I'm trying to figure out. Because it sounds familiar. It's like cause I'm trying to figure out what effect it is. Like it's not chorus. It's not reverb. I don't know what the fuck it is. Like a flanger. If you have a four knob flanger, like I like the again the A R I R I O N the Orion flangers. But um, 
Ibanez. Those four knob flangers, you can get almost any sound out of those. They're kind of maddening because too many knobs, but that's like the police that Andy Summers, people think it's chorus, but it's actually flanger. Really? Yeah. Who knew, right? I had no I was today years old when I found that out. I really had no idea. I always thought yeah. like this is kind of cool chorus sound, but it's a fucking flanger all the time? Yeah, I mean flangers, if you get a if you get a, a versatile one, you can get like pitch bend out of them. You can do all kinds of things with those. That's the one that's the one deep four knob pedal that I can get into because you know it's it's fun. Huh. Underrated. People hate them, but I love them. Shoot, maybe you have to be the one to you know be like the like evangelize the greatest of flangers. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> they hey, they can do this too. Like oh shit, you know. Totally. Yeah, you know? I like the the Ibanez, the yellow, the FL nine or whatever it is, the yellow one, and the Orions are my favorite. And yeah. the well, and the and the you know the 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 MXR is my, the one that the classic Ram Rio one. So. Nice. Yeah. So, is there anything else out there you want us to check out right now? You know, I real I li- I've, I've been listening to a lot of dark wave and new wave stuff, um, but recent things I really like that, um, and so I got some stuff. You know, I'm always hearing about those things. I, it's like a really small scene, so I, I hear about some, you know, person in Berlin that's making music out of their bedroom or something. I, I really enjoy digging around there, but there's so much music happening now, it's hard to keep up. What are you into? Uh, what am I into lately? All right, this is one style of Japanese R&B and funk and jazz that was really popular in the late 70s and 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And they called it new music, but another term is called city pop, right? And okay. the shit's fucking amazing. It sounds like eighties boogie, right? Like kind of kind of eighties R and B boogie sound, and everything. But like this Japanese lilting vocal. Oh wow! And it's a total mind fuck. Like imagine something like by Shaka Khan, right? And it's like this Japanese woman on there, and I'm like, yo, um, this other dude named Tashiro Yamashita, right? And I just fucking I love that guy's, um, that guy has an amazing right hand, you know, great rhythm chops. And it's one of those things where, here's a kicker about it. Most of the songs are in Japanese, right? And, okay. and I'm like, his, his way of melody, and I'm just fucking amazed by it, right? And yeah. another one called Maria Takeuchi, right? Had a song called Plastic Love, which was crazy because it wasn't even a big of a hit in Japan at the time, right? It was damn near obscure. Like, hit like 82 on the chart, right? But it ended up being like this major hit in the U.S. like in 2019 to 2020, right? So, wow. and it's like, it just sounded, it was like a pop song, but it was so goddamn complicated in the beginning. Like, these really good jazz chords and everything. Like, imagine like Steely Dan if they produced Shaka Khan. Oh my god, that sounds like my favorite band. <laughs> That's really what it sounds like. It's like Yacht Rock if they let Black Falls on a boat more. That's the best way, That's the best way to describe it. Like That just slipped out. What the fuck did I just say? Oh my god. It just, that just slipped out. Like, why the fuck did I say that? Why the fuck did I just say that? That's really funny. Wow, I gotta check this out. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, what I actually now that you say it, what I love is I'm in love with K-pop. I really love this band Blackpink. Do you know Blackpink? I remember. You know, it's kind of funny about the whole city, the whole K-pop thing. I remember when, all right, as you probably know, I'm a fucking huge nerd, right? So naturally, mm-hmm. guys, myself love Japanese animation, right? So yeah. I remember like J-pop stuff, like the like like raves like full of J-pop shit and the yeah. K-pop stuff, right? Yeah. So I remember like hearing about it, and the only time you could hear it was like. He was in a Korean hair store, right? Because I remember my mom and sister, right? So I'm like, oh, J-pop? No, 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 K-pop. It's like, okay, cool. So next thing I know, I ever saw a BTS, I'm like, oh, behind the scenes? Who's, who's behind the scenes? Oh, it was a boy band. 
Yeah. So next thing you know, I find out about this. So I'm like, oh shit. You know, yeah. so I'm like, okay, it's cool. You know, I dig it though. So I'm like, I'm feeling it. You know, Blackpink is. I mean, sorry, BTS is solid. I like some of the songs. I love Blackpink, and I'm obsessed with their production. Like the the Teddy who produces their stuff. Like it's a huge influence on all that work I've done with Caitlyn Demaray. Caitlyn actually. Nice. Like I listen to their stuff. We listen to their stuff almost every day. I'm obsessed with that band. <laughs> I gotta delve more into Blackpink, but I'm like the idea of a band like BTS or like a you know, like selling at stadiums, I'm like, I'm just thoroughly amazed, you know? Yeah. But I remember this one group, I'm not sure if they're like K-pop or J-pop, because I remember, all right, here's the deal, back in the day, because um, being like a huge Japanese animation fan, right, there was this one channel called International Channel, right, and they'll play Dragon Ball Z Uncut, and when I say that, I mean literally the raw Japanese dub. I don't know what the fuck they were saying, but they were showing, wow. exactly, I was that diehard into it, right? I don't know what the hell they're saying, actually, but I'm like, I kind of figure along, right? But you'll see, like, these shows, like, um, like some, like, Asian, like, you know, some Asian music show, right? And this is one group called God. Mm-hmm. It's so, like, G-O-D, I forgot what it was, what it was called, actually, what their initials were, but I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> cool. So I remember, like, I'm just surprised that it broke through, like, it broke over to, like, to, like, uh, to U.S. Shores. I'm just like, I'm glad, though. I'm just. I know. I'm I'm glad that like the tyranny of English is sort of like maybe finally coming to an end on American radio, you know, like I mean also also Bad Bunny and stuff like that. So, yes, you know, oh my god. Like, it's like so overdue. Exactly, right. you know, cuz I put it this way, when it comes to guys like Bad Bunny, I think Daddy Yankee crawl so you can walk, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, cuz I keep on thinking about like, you know, I think it was the reggaeton cuz I was watching like Monday Night Raw cuz that's one of those weird things that end up like you know actually doing a pretty solid match on WrestleMania. Even saying that phrase is weird as shit. Um, what happened was he, he was doing this interview segment. Where he had like a shirt with Tego Calderon on it. I'm like, oh shit, he goes deep in there. You know? Yeah. So I'm like, so that's one thing I was into with younger. Was like reggaeton too. I'm more of a dancehall guy, but like, but like um, like reggaeton have a soft spot for it. I'm glad to see like. Cause here's the thing, especially in the DC area, like seriously, on the pop station, right? You hear like you know reggaeton stuff, like these reggaeton radio shows, will right. be on there, you know. So I'm glad to see like this wave of stuff coming up. It sounds a little more diverse and whatnot, right? It's like just messing with different sounds. I mean, I'm just loving it. Yeah, it's super cool, right? Yeah, and also I know you're a fan of Woven In, right? Yeah, I love Mariah's stuff, man. I really do. Yeah. Yeah, cause like um, cause I know, cause I'm friends with her too, and I was like, I was scrolling through, and I'm like, hey, hey, Kyle likes him too, nice. Yeah, I, lo- I mean, like I said, I love all that. I don't know what Mariah, if Mariah calls her their work like dark wave or what, but I, I consider it in that same kind of vein. As, I think she calls it dark wave, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm just obsessed with that sound, man. <laughs> I can't get enough of it. I'm with you, you know, cause it's like you know, also I dig a lot of post punk stuff too, you know, so it's kind of like a. It, it all kind of goes together, like, you know, cold wave, you know, dark wave as well. Yeah. That's sort of kind of cabaret pop thing. It just kind of, like, falls into place, really, you know? Yeah, I mean, all of us that came up listening to Depeche Mode and stuff like that, it's just, like, exactly. never got over that sound. Exactly, you know? You know, it's kind of funny. I discovered, like, a lot of metalheads like Depeche Mode. I'm still trying to figure out the connection, though. It's kind of darkness to it. Yeah. Shoot. I just thought it was funny about, like, Martin Gore, because I was, like... I found because it's kind of weird. Like I found on that Martin Gore's dad's from Virginia, and he kind of looks like my aunt. <laughs> like seriously, oh, that'd be crazy. You found out your aunt was in Depeche Mode this whole time. All I'm saying is this: like, um, 
the guy's dad is actually from the part where like my family's from. So I'm like, wow, he looks kind of like. So I always though like I always jokingly said like, so mom, you know what? If you and Nita had a brother, this would probably look like him. <laughs> <laughs> Cousin Martin Gore. Hey, hey I claim him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, great chatting with you. Love to have great, you on man. again. Yeah, yeah, super fun. Thanks so much for the interview. No problem. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for granting it to me. Yeah. Oh, oh, please. It's great talking to you, man. Hey, that was Kaya Fisher. Check him out on Instagram under Kaya underscore TF. Until next time, take it easy and please use common sense.